Nintendo Audio. Hi everybody, this is Steve Balderson. My film, Alchemy of the Spirit, was released this week. To celebrate the release of the film, I'd like to replay an episode we did with Dr. Joseph Suglia, where Dr. Suglia analyzes the film to minute detail. It was a lot of fun talking to him, so I hope you enjoyed this rebroadcast. Please support Indie Film and watch Alchemy of the Spirit on Prime Video. And afterwards, please rate and leave a review. Thank you. Enjoy the show. I'm Steve Balderson, and you're listening to the Filmmaking Confidential Podcast. In this podcast, we meet with filmmakers, writers, actors, artists, and other notables. Today's guest is Dr. Joseph Suglia. Dr. Joseph Suglia is a novelist, a short story writer, a playwright, a literary critic, and a philosophical commentator. He is best known as the author of the controversial best-selling novel, Watch Out, which was adapted for the screen and became my third feature film. Today, Dr. Suglia analyzes and dissects my new art film, Alchemy of the Spirit, which stars Xander Berkeley, Sarah Clark, and cult icon Mink Stoll. Let me tell you how this came about, the yes. genesis of this. Because I can't remember if I told you this or not when we were on the phone once, but um, over the course of time, any time, if an image comes to mind, I make a note. I, I sketch it, I draw it, I, I, I put it away. Because I don't know what that image is tied to yet. You know, which, which project will this image end up in? I don't know. So I have at any given time, uh, different piles of, well, this might be part of this project. So I'll put it in that pile, or this feels like it's, it's attached to this. So I'll put it over there. And one morning, I believe it was June of 2019. It, It could have been July or August. I can't remember. I woke up and learned that my mentor, Eric Sherman, had died. And I felt a sense of his presence all around, almost like he was there still to support, to guide, to encourage. And I felt great. I felt empowered. I felt... um, no sense of loss, but rather an incredible sense of gain. And it was this beautiful feeling. And I had the instinct immediately to, I had to start painting. I haven't had, I haven't painted a painting in 15 years, but I immediately got in an Uber and went to the Blick art studio to buy some canvas and some paints and some brushes, you know, some basic, just basic stuff. And I walk in the building And I feel this gaze that went through me. It was one of those that was just, it was a frequency that I felt 
that caused me to react to it physically. And I, it was this man with ice white blue eyes, an old, old man. And I just found it very strange. And I, I walked in a little further and he was just following me. He was just at me, through me, as I was moving across the room. And I looked back up again, and he's still looking at me, and I realize it's David Lynch. Now, let me back up. Eric Sherman, my mentor, was the one who got David Lynch's film Eraserhead shown at the AFM when no one else would play it. And Eric was invited once to the premiere of Lost Highway, or I can't remember which movie it was, and he couldn't go, so he gave me the invitation, and I went. Eric had introduced me to David in 99, 2000, or 2001, and at that time, we had never met in person, and we'd never spoken out loud, but he had a fax machine, and we would fax, you know, half a dozen times, back and forth, and I went up to him. I mean, he was walking sort of past me at this point, and I stopped him, and I introduced myself, which is this is the first time we've seen each other in person, ever. And he says, it's so good to see you again. And I said, you too, knowing that somehow in the ether, we had met actually in person. And then I tell him about what happened with, I think I told him that Eric had died. I can't remember if I did or not, quite frankly, because it was just in this passing. And and we just said, you know, have a have a good day. And we walked apart. And then I felt whatever had happened was significant. And on, I'm almost done. On my Uber, I just went about getting my art supplies, thinking, well, he's here getting his art supplies. Great. So I'm going to get my things and I'm going to go home. And I go home. And in the car, on the way, the pictures from the piles started going. And it was all one movie. And by the time I got home, the story had started to formulate. It started to just make sense. I called Sarah Clark, who plays Evelyn, and I said, uh, (laughs) Evelyn, we're making a movie. Sarah, we're making a movie. Do you think your husband Xander would be interested? I'd met him before, but I'd never worked with him. And they had moved to Maine, which is where we filmed, actually. And she uh, said, you know, Xander just landed at LAX 30 minutes ago. Here's his number. Call him. So I called him and he said, uh, let's meet for coffee in 30 minutes. And so I, on the way to the coffee shop, my, the story is still clicking into place. So I had enough of it together that when I sat down with him, it was almost a complete story, but it still wasn't complete yet. And I told him about it and he said, yes, let's do it. And the rest is history. And by the time I got home, I, the story was still coming out and we just went for it. I have to, okay. I apologize for laughing, but there's a reason There was a strange moment of synchronicity as you were telling that story. And I have to tell you this, okay? This is mind-blowing. As you were talking about the the demise of your mentor, I thought of a film. And this was long before you you intoned the name David Lynch. Do you know what film I was thinking of? I'm not joking. Mm. Mm. The Elephant Man from 1980. Because at the end of The Elephant Man, we see John Merrick. I think that's the name of The Elephant Man. We see John Merrick's mother's face kind of take over the screen. And she says, nothing ever dies. No one ever dies. At the end of The Elephant Man. 
which is a beautiful film. And I think even though it made a splash in 1980, I've always thought that that was one of David Lynch's most underestimated films. Because people don't talk about The Elephant Man anymore. They talk about other films by David Lynch, but it's like people have forgotten about The Elephant Man. It's a great film. But anyway, and it occurred to me that people are more living when they're dead than when they're alive. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's Mm -hmm. like, it's like, I've always thought this, that no one ever dies insofar as they are remembered. And I've, I've consoled many people, at least I I don't know if I have, but I tried to console people who are, who are mourning, who are undergoing the process of bereavement. What I usually say to them, and this is not a slogan or a formula. I mean, it sincerely, it's a genuine statement. Whenever someone tells me, you know what, my mother died, my brother died, my husband died, my wife died, I always say to them, no one ever dies. I am quoting intentionally the elephant man. But I say, people only die if you forget them. And if someone has an impact on you, if someone leaves an impression on you that's enduring, that person will never die. Because what has happened is that we're not like autonomous free agents. We don't create ourselves. We are created but we don't create ourselves. And we are the, the sum total of all the things that happen to us. We're more than that too, I believe, but we are also the sum total of what happens to us, the, the, or I should just say the totality of what happens to us. So, so the, the people you know leave an impression on you. And it, th- this is one way of thinking of the dead, that the dead still have a bearing on the living. Now, the worst thing that could happen is oblivion. And when I say oblivion, I don't mean death. I mean forgottenness, right? The worst thing you could do to someone is forget that person. And I also believe, you know, uh, you know, we both know about Watch Out. One of Jonathan Barrow, I don't want to get into that too much, but but Jonathan Barrows was an expert in insulting people, right? And I thought I thought about at the time I was writing that book, I thought about like the worst insults you could possibly hurl at someone. And it occurs to me that the the worst insult is really simply forgetting someone, which is something that Jonathan Barrows never was smart enough to do. I don't want to get into that too much, but I'm just saying that I uh, yes. But you know what I mean? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That, that, that insofar as a person is remembered, that person is more radiantly present, is more livingly, lifefully present than when that person was alive. I know it's a paradox, yes. but it makes sense, doesn't it? It does. I mean, I felt the same when Karen Black died. And mm-hmm. there, the speech that Evelyn gives to Oliver about the unknown and knowing that you're truly alive is, was what Karen told me before she died. Wow. This is a very personal film. This is a more personal film than I thought it was. And there are also things in it. I'm I'll use the word alchemy just because it's part of the title, but I've always sort of done this. If, if I bring a part of my being, whether that's ancestral or experiential into the thing that I'm creating, it's a little bit of magic, I feel. So, for instance, in my film Firecracker, the mother's name that Karen Black played was Eleanor White. That was the name of my grandmother. 
in real life. And when my grandmother had dementia and I went to see her and she looked at me directly with total focus and said, this is a miserable existence. I knew that she was telling me for a reason, not just in general. And I incorporated that into that person in that film, the character in that film. Now that movie was based on a true story. So those were actual people's parts that they played, but their names had been changed. Let me ask you something. So when Eleanor, if I may call her Eleanor, when Eleanor said, this is a miserable existence, it seems to me that that statement could be interpreted in at least two ways. On the one hand, she could be pointing at her existence and saying, you know, my existence has been miserable, but she could also be talking about the world. So it mm-hmm. could be the, the, like the Buddhist idea, the Buddhistic idea that life is suffering. And, and if you look at the Hebraic Bible, the so-called Old Testament, that book says many things, but one of the things that it clearly says is that human beings are in a fallen state and that existence is fallenness. So I just want to know, do you think that Eleanor meant one or the other of those things or both of those things or something else? I don't know what she meant, but I heard it as life itself, not just about her presence and what she was experiencing. I felt that it was a, a sort of a, an instruction to for because she knew I heard it that way. So she told me and she didn't tell my sister. She didn't tell the other person, you know, she told me and that's how I took it. But I've always done that. So in alchemy of the spirit, I, uh, her husband, my grandfather, who had taken lots of photographs, but they were sort of dark. Whereas my father's father took lots of photographs, but they were full of emotion and faces and sort of goodness so I, I have a little bit of the goodness of the emotional, of the character's face, and then I also have this darkness at the same time woven in what I do. And he used to carve uh, little animals, little birds and little things out of wood. And there are in the film pieces that he created that I took to the set and placed on the mantelpiece or put in the movie. The possum that's featured in the film <laughs> is, my, is my possum that I've had since I was four years old. And he made an appearance in a cameo in Firecracker, and he had a cameo in another film. And this is his third appearance. But I, I knew he had to come. He lives in Kansas at my father's. But I said, I've got to have him in this movie. You've got to send him. Because this is how it came about. When I was four years old, and I went to see Santa at the mall, and the old man said, you know, what would you like from Santa? And I said, a possum. And he was looking at my mother and my mother's like, I don't know, you know, and I would not let go of it. You know, wouldn't you like a toy? Wouldn't you like a fire? Wouldn't you like a fire engine? Wouldn't you like whatever? I want a possum. And I was not going to budge. And sure enough, I came down, you know, the morning, uh, Christmas morning or whatever. And there was a possum from Santa. And my mom had, you know, the week before uh, somebody had accidentally trapped one and it was dead. And she said, I, I need it. <laughs> she took it to the taxidermist. And I named this possum Clarence. And he has a very good spiritual energy about him. And uh, so I brought that into the movie. I mean, there were things that were, and I encouraged the others too. You know, I encouraged my actors to bring their own clothes. I encouraged uh, the people of the crew, my, my cameraman, 
Hanuman Brown Eagle, who was the cinematographer, um, his mother had some old vinyl records. And I said, bring those for the props because you're going to bring your energy into it also. I, I have some some just banal questions. I know we're talking about high end concepts, but just some just some mm-hmm. more banal questions. Was this filmed in Kansas? This film? No, it was filmed in Maine. In Maine, an yeah, hour, it, didn't, it didn't an, look like Kansas to me. Yeah, no, it was an hour or so east of Portland in a little yeah. tiny town uh-huh. with maybe a mile in diameter. Yeah, that's what it looked where like. Where they have like a general New store. England. It really <laughs> yeah. looked like a New England town. Um, the other thing is, it, and again, I've only seen this film once, but did I see, and if I'm wrong about this, I'm sorry to waste time, but Xander Berkeley, did he also do the art design? He, those are all his actual paintings. Uh, how did you meet him? He's, I, I've known Sarah, his wife. That's uh, all right. Years. It's, all right. Okay, okay. And, and sometime I had a birthday dinner and she brought him. So we'd met, we'd talked before. Um, a mutual friend named Kathleen Wilhoit, who, the actress, uh, at this birthday dinner in 2017 or 18, uh, said, you know, Xander has this property in Maine. And she kind of, that was the initial planting of the seed. So when I was uh, first finished with the film, I shared it with Kathleen first before anybody had seen it. And she said uh, afterwards that one of her greatest fears is the fear of death. And that at that moment, she didn't have it anymore. And it, that was a really interesting thing that I, I just, I, it was, it was special to share it with her because it sort of started with her. And so this, again, this is a far more personal film than I thought it was. And I would never have yes. known this had you not told me these, these anecdotes. So I have a question about the Mink Stole character. Whose name mm-hmm. escapes me? I'm sorry, um, Alex. A- Alex, right? Alex. Now she's a, she's a kind of art broker, isn't she? She's an she's art like his dealer, agent. his agent. But she's also isn't she's kind of like an art broker. Well, she's she's the agent. Fine. And I, I couldn't help but think, in many in many ways, she's a very kind of sinister character. She seems to be friendly, but she's not quite as friendly as she seems. And, mm. and I'm wondering, is, is that your commentary on the art world or the art industry? Are you, is she, does she epitomize your kind of ambivalent feelings toward the art industry? Because I, I, she's, not, she's not entirely a trustworthy character. No, she's not. And she is also, I mean, the, the same goes in the film business. And I would imagine the yeah. literary world also. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's the, the broker who... They don't care what it is you're making as long as they're getting their good commission. And they don't understand good art. When when it time when it, when the time comes for me to uh visit with a couple of managers and sales agents about this film, I'm I'm almost looking forward to it in such a way that it, it will just be really really funny because they may not recognize what this is until it's made money and, and then they'll say, Oh, it's a, it, you know, it's so interesting because you could, you could write something that is genius and they don't notice <laughs> until they're getting a commission. And once they're getting a commission, well, then it must be good. And so that's sort of my take on just art versus uh, the people who are responsible for selling it really don't know what they're doing. I think the only way, and maybe this is a conversation we could have off the air, as it were, but 
I think the best way of promoting this film to the art brokers is not to say anything metaphysical. Don't, don't say anything metaphysical. Don't say anything philosophical. Don't, don't even talk about the nature of art. Just present it as if it were sentimentalistic. Not that, I don't think it is sentimentalistic, but present it as if it were and say, look, this is a film about a man who loses his wife and then brings his wife back to life. Just in one sentence, they'll be like, oh, it's a feel-good kind of film. It's not. I don't think it is. <laughs> you don't think it is. But you have to dumb it down. And of if, 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 But honestly, I'm not joking. I, and I don't flatter anyone, as you know. I, I'm very much a tell-it-like-it-is person. And I'm, I can be very blunt and very critical, as you know. No, this film could be loved and it could be adored by millions of people. If it's seen, if it's presented in the right way, and I'm not just saying that, um, it's the kind of film that will make most audiences vaporize in tears. It's, mm. it's, it's emotionally powerful. It really is. And not in some cheap way, but in a really genuine, visceral way. Oh, mm. it's, I mean, it, it's a powerful film. And um, it's a beautiful film. And I, I, I mean, I really do hope it is seen. I really do hope it is seen. Um, it certainly deserves to be, but what can you do? Dr. Joseph Suglia. The next episode is filmmaker Bruce LaBruce. Like all art, you know, 90% of it is bad art, but I appreciate it still as an art form. However, in my career, I've always been caught sort of in the middle between pornography and art. People in the art world think my products are too pornographic and people in the porn world are very skeptical of me and they think I'm an artist who's kind of intruding or kind of exploiting porn. To hear my full talk with Bruce LaBruce, subscribe now and you'll know the moment the episode is released. We'll be right back with Dr. Joseph Suglia. Stay with us. Now, back to our conversation with Dr. Joseph Suglia. Now, in archaic religions, time is an illusion. And time is abolished. If you think deeply enough about it, there's no such thing as time right? There is no time. History is also a temporal illusion, and our lives are illusions. Now, that's the context, Steve, in which I'm reading this film. But I want to turn more immediately to the film. And if I get any details wrong, please let me know. I did watch the film very attentively, but I only saw it once. But I do relish seeing it again and again and again. But this is just a first viewing, so I might I might make a mistake here and there. Feel free to correct me if I do. But this is what I'm getting from the film. So there's a character by the name of Oliver, played by Xander Berkeley. And Oliver is an elderly artist who wakes up one morning to find that his wife, Evelyn, died in their bed. Steve, don't be afraid it, uh, it, to, to say anything. Did I get her name right? Is it Evelyn? Correct. Oh, go, good. I got the right. Uh, Evelyn. He then uses the medium of art to revivify her. This is very important. Now, the question is, is the wife zombified? Is she revivified? 
Or is this the hallucination of Oliver, the elderly artist? Your film never tells us, and frankly, I'm glad that your film never gives us an answer. I like that. We've talked about this before, Steve. I think you and I both like art that is ambiguous, and I think we both believe that art should be ambiguous. It shouldn't give us easy answers, right? We've yes. had conversations. You and I have had many conversations about this, so I know we're on the same page. Now, I don't want you to think that I'm saying your film is unoriginal. It's, 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 it is original, but it does recall, I think, um, a few myths, which I don't think is uh, a slight to your film at all. Uh, the film partly recalls a Greek myth, and that is the myth of Alcestis, in which the Greek princess gives her life to continue the life of her beloved husband, Admetus. But I will say that the narrative of your film is actually quite different from the narrative of the myth. Evelyn in the film doesn't actually give her life to save her husband, Oliver. Not really. Now, the film somewhat, and I only say somewhat, conjures Shakespeare, particularly his play The Winter's Tale, which was a very late play. It's, it's what uh, The Winter's Tale was called. It, I'm a Shakespearean myself. The Winter's Tale is called A Late Romance, and it was first published very late in the first folio of Shakespeare's works in um, 1623. It's a very... Shakespeare wrote it right before he died, interestingly. But anyway, in The Winter's Tale, Hermione, the Queen of Sicily, dies from the heartbreak of being accused of infidelity by her pathologically jealous husband, King Leon Leonatus. King Leonatus. Now, at the end of the play, a statue of the dead queen comes to life. But we don't know if we are looking at an animated statue or if this is the resurrected body of the queen. So one of the things I, I really like about Shakespeare's play is that Shakespeare doesn't give us an easy answer to this question. We, the spectators, we don't know what we're looking at. Is this the revived queen? Is it a statue that is animated? We don't know. In the same way that we really don't know what's going on in your film. And I like that. I like that. Now, this is a strange way to talk about specifics, Steve, but I'm actually going to begin with um, the moment at which the old man goes to the bathroom <laughs> so, at, at minute nine. Now, this is symbolic of excretion, of expelling the waste, the evacuation of the dead, of refuse, of awful, O-F-F-A-L, in the same way that death is an expulsion of waste. I mean, isn't it interesting? That one of the very first things that Oliver does after discovering the cadaver of his wife in their bed is to go to the bathroom. No one could just say, well, it's a natural thing. He had to go to the bathroom. But I think I think this is more meaningful than that. It's very, very interesting that he goes to the bathroom almost immediately after discovering the cadaver of his wife. Very interesting. And this leads me to the next symbol that I noticed. And then he drinks a glass of red wine it could appear to the spectator that it is red wine. It's kind of like you're looking at a painting, you know, you're looking at a surrealist painting and you, you point at a figure and you say, is that an apple? Is that a drop of blood? What is, you know what I mean? It's good. We really don't know, but it does, it could be interpreted as wine, right? So, so let me get into that. He then drinks a glass of red wine, which in Christianity 
is a symbol of the unification of humankind with God through the Holy Spirit. But I want to hasten to say something, because I think this is very important, and this is very, very important for anyone who has either seen your film or who is interested in seeing your film. And by the way, I think this film, if it if it's marketed well, will be seen by millions of people. I, I really do. It's just, This is... I'll get into that later, but let me just say this. I don't think that this film is a Christian allegory. I think that would be too easy. I think it evokes many, many religions, not just Christianity. I do think it partly invokes Christianity, but this isn't some simplistic evangelical Christian allegory, not at all. But I do think that moment does evoke Christianity, ancient Christianity. But I don't think the whole film does. As I said earlier, if anything, it evokes Zoroastrianism, which predated Christianity by more than a millennium. It evokes ancient Judaism. I mean, the ancient Judaic religion. It, it, it goes way beyond Christianity. So I just want to say that because I, I think we have too many Christianized films on the market right now. And I'm happy to say that this is not one of them. <laughs> so I'm happy to say that. So let me move on. All right. My, this might actually, you know me well enough, Steve, that this probably won't surprise you. Do you know who my favorite character in the film was? Mm. <laughs> Sam Cook. <laughs> my favorite character in the film was Sam Cook with his eggs and his insistent offer that he deliver eggs to Oliver and his wife. I don't think this will surprise you because you know me well enough to know that I like marginal characters, right? I love, I, I and I have, and by the way, this is in Shakespeare, in Shakespeare. As a Shakespearean scholar, I can say this, and I've written about this, by the way. Um, I'm writing a book on Shakespeare. The most important characters in Shakespeare are the characters that seem to be marginal, peripheral. It's so interesting. And I, I write about this in, in various chapters in my book, which hasn't been published. I'm not done with it. But, but it's so interesting that that if you look at it like in Rome and the tragedy, the most uh, lamentable and excellent tragedy of Romeo and Juliet, the most important characters are not Romeo and Juliet. It's Rosalind. Rosalind, this this marginal character we never actually see. She is the most important character of them. I, I anyway, Sam Cooke, I would argue, is pivotal to this film. But let me get into why I think that. So Sam Cooke is bent on delivering eggs. This is his only role in the film, it is true. But it leads me to think that egg delivery is his reason for existing. And what are eggs other than the symbols of birth? And in this context, the egg is a symbol of rebirth. Now, at minute 33, at minute 33 of your film, there, I believe, is conjured the myth of Pygmalion. Pygmalion, as we know, was an artist who never wanted to get married. So what did he do? He sculpted an effigy of the ideal woman for him, right? And then, of course, that ideal woman came to life. And there is, at minute 33 of your film, a Pygmalion-like moment when Oliver is being embraced by his revived wife from behind, Oliver is being embraced by his revived wife from behind while he is painting a replica of his wife. Now, at this moment, art has ceased to be art anymore, right? Art is no longer art 
when it ceases to be a copy of reality and when it becomes reality itself. So art is no longer a copy. Art becomes the model. Art becomes the real. And it is such an interesting scene. I hope that someday, Steve, this film will be shown in art schools. It should be. Because that scene is, is, is a paradigm. You have a creation embracing the artist from behind while he's creating another replica. I mean, it's just amazing. It's just a, it's, it's an amazing allegory about art and life, I think. But also creation. Creation that is not just artistic creation, but creation itself. Anyway, let me get into minute 51 is, um, is really a shocking moment. And I think it, it, I think it will shock audiences. It's a shocking moment in which Oliver accidentally perforates the painting with, a, I think it's a chisel or something. So Oliver perforates the painting on which he is working and it bleeds as if again, art becomes life and ceases to be a simulation. The moment at which art becomes indistinguishable from the model. Now, this is in the context of a dream. Oliver is having what seems to be a fever dream. So the dream is really a figure of what he has done in the film, which is recreate his wife through the medium of art and bring her back to life. Or so it seems. So what seems to be a work of art is actually the real living organism. And in a way, this is tragedy. And it's so interesting to me because the moment at 55, in a way, it is a tragic moment, but it's seen in the context of a dream. So your film kind of evokes tragedy and then it revokes tragedy. It's just, it's just, I love these moments that I, I see this in, 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 in works of sophisticated art, such as yours, that you think the film is going in a certain direction and then it pulls back. Now, having collaborated with you on Hedda Gobbler, you and I played these games quite a bit. <laughs> we played these games quite a bit. Like, you think you know where this is going, and then we, we pull you back. And <laughs> so was, I like that moment very much for many reasons. But um, probably the most determinative figure of all in the film, in my opinion, is the feather. Now, the feather scene occurs at minute 57. The feather is a metaphor for the invisible for the supernatural. The feather is what links the natural world to the supranatural world. Again, not supernatural, but supernatural world. It is a nexus between the visible and the invisible. So Evelyn says to Oliver, I quote, whenever you see a feather, you know that I am near you. Now, this is a very interesting quotation because, wait, isn't she already there with him? You know, it's like, it's like, and this this leads me to believe, and I there there are no answers, but this could in fact be uh, Oliver's fever dream hallucination. We don't really know. It could be his hallucination of a dead wife. We don't really know what we're witnessing, and that's good. That's good. It's ambiguous. Okay, I would say that the feather is a figure of the Axis Mundi. The feather in the film is a symbol, that is, of the nexus with the supernatural. Okay, now I have a question for you, Steve, and it's a small question, but I, I really am curious. One of my favorite scenes in the film occurs at one hour and eight minutes. Now, I cannot tell, and I know Oliver does this twice in the film, is Oliver walking to a hardware store or a convenience store? Like, what? where is he going? What, what kind of a place is that? 
Um, it's a, a general store. A general store. You see, this is the thing. As you, as you, as you, I don't know if I told you, I'm still in Chicago. We don't have that here, Steve. <laughs> it's very much, that's very much a middle American and Southern American place, which I love. I'm not putting it down, but I just don't have anything like that around here. But um, so he's walking to a general store. Okay, good. So Oliver is walking to the general store. And you do something that's brilliant, Steve, which is why this is one of my favorite scenes in the film. The narrative is intensified and is made to seem as if we are witnessing the incursion of the supernatural into the natural. So the scene is imbued with magic. And the way you film it is, is amazing. There are these two girls on um, a park bench, I think, or something, and they're giggling. They're not, I don't think they're giggling at him. Like, oh, haha! look at the old man. They're just giggling. They're just talking about Snapchat or something. But it's filmed in such a surrealized way. And we see a bus through this haze. And then it's just like the camera goes up and we see the wires of, of, of like a telephone pole. And, and it's just, it's wonderfully surreal. I loved it. Love that scene. But I, I think the point I'm trying to make is that at that moment, you can feel the incursion of the supernatural in the, in the natural world. That's, that's the real point I wanted to make. Anyway, now I know this, you won't take this as an insult, Steve, because I know how much you admire Hitchcock. There is a Hitchcockian moment in this film. Now it might not have been intentional, whatever, but th this is, this is really the only scene in your film that refers to another film directly. It's the hallucinated murder of Sam Cooke. And it recalls for me, at least the Arbogast scene. Do you remember when, when Arbogast meets Mother and Psycho from 1960? I, I, I couldn't stop thinking about it. It reminds me of that scene. Remember where Milton Arbogast, the detective in Psycho, is walking up the stairs, which he's not supposed to do, to meet Mother, and Mother comes down. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not, it's not a direct copy, not at all, but it evokes Hitchcock. And, and, and I, I know how much you, you admire Hitchcock. I mean, Roger Ebert, the late Roger Ebert, Chicago's own Roger Ebert, once said of your film Firecracker that it had a Hitchcockian scene. So I know you're not going to take that as an insult. I think it's a, it's a compliment, if anything. But that scene, that was the one scene I thought that really referred to something else. Xander says at the one hour mark, and I quote, cells have to break apart in order to be made stronger. So cells have to break apart in order to be made stronger. Muscles have to be broken apart in order to be made stronger. So again, you have this motif that death must come in order for there to be space for the living. All right. Now let me get to my, my basic take of the film. Let me say that your film is majestic and numinous, and it concerns the numinous. It is lyrically atmospheric and atmospherically lyrical. That's my, that would be my one sentence review of the film. That's just my aesthetic judgment of your film. And I've noticed with great satisfaction, this kind of evolutionary development um, of yourself as an artist. This is a work of art, a genuine work of art. Um, but it's, it's just been very heartening to watch your evolutionary transformation. Well, let's think about alchemy. Well, in its most essential form, alchemy is the transmutation of filth into something precious. 
And the human imagination has the innate tendency to transmute death into immortality. Now, human beings unavailingly struggle against the destructions of time. They cannot endure the thought that they will die because they have the desire for immortality. I'm going to return to that in a minute. And this is the alchemy of the mind, the transmutation of all of the garbage of existence, the trash of existence, the dreck, the awful, the refuse, the transformation of death into the living. Now, I do not believe that it is possible to regenerate the past. And I don't believe it's possible to abolish time. But I do know that the desire to regenerate the past and to abolish time is a persistent, yet fragile, and recognizably human desire. So again, I do not believe that immortality is possible, at least not immortality on the earth. But I do believe that each human being desires immortality. And artists, such as yourself, desire immortality more passionately than most other human beings do. So this is my theorem. This is my main takeaway here. We do not desire immortality because we are afraid of death. No. We are afraid of death because we desire to be immortal. So it is not the fear of death that produces the need for immortality, but the need for immortality that produces the fear of death. So there you go. Maybe we could just talk in a, in a free ranging way if you'd like. Well, there's one correction I wanted to make, but I, when I initially saw this, I thought it was intentional and I love it. The, the title of the film is Alchemy of the Spirit. <laughs> but you know, when I saw that you had, you had titled our, our talk today, The Alchemy of Life, I thought, well, of course you would, because that's exactly what we're talking about. And I love that that happened because it, it's exactly what you just said. Okay, that's good. Well, you see, this is good. So an error turned out to be a productive error. So, so just to be clear, what, what is, what is the, I, I guess I got it wrong, but, but it's good in a way. It's good that I got it wrong, but what is the official title of this film? Alchemy of the spirit. But still it's interesting what, what I did there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That is very interesting. And then I thought about it and I thought at the same time, yeah, it, it's also the alchemy of the mind. Mm-hmm. It really is. And, and it's just, this is just so interesting. Yeah. Cause I, I think that the title is, is resonant because it really encompasses all of those things. Right. It really does. Yeah. And I, I can't remember when I first heard that. I, I think it was in an Alan Watts talk or it was, it was somebody like Alan Watts. If it wasn't Alan Watts, because they were talking about it in such a way that, um, it just, we'd already made the movie. And what was interesting was that I had not heard Alan Watts or read Eckhart Tolle mm -hmm. or 
started digging into some of these philosophers discussing mind, uh, life and death, you know, all these things uh, and that which articulated exactly what I meant by this movie. But I, I hadn't known this before. So I've been obsessed for the past, you know, six months while we've been in post-production, just soaking up all of these different uh, ideas and discussions about death and rebirth and ongoing and the human and uh, the, the mind being the only way the universe exists. Mm-hmm. I love all of this. It's so fascinating to me. And every take that you took from it and all the things that you're saying inspire me in the same way. Oh, good. That's good. Yeah, I wanted to give you... See, I, I my sense of you is... And I'm like this too. It, I, look, I'm a scholar when I'm a scholar. But when I create art, everything I do is based on intuition. Mm-hmm. And I get that sense from you. I don't want to like typify you, but I kind of get you. You were like that, aren't you? Like you're, yes. you're more, you're, see, I'm that way. But again, only when I create art. So when I'm actually think, you know, analyzing things, I'm not that way at all. But when I create art, my art is intuitive and your art is mm-hmm. intuitive as well. And so what I wanted to do is give you a kind of scholarly framework in which to understand this film because, and I like it because it, it, it's not reducible to the tenets of any particular religion. It really mm-hmm. isn't. But I think it goes back to our deepest ancestors and our deepest human connection to our ancestors. Um, you know, if you think about religion, ancient religion in particular, that was the first attempt of human beings to make sense of the cosmos. Now, I I believe in evolutionary psychology. I know it's a controversial thing. Not all psychologists do, but I do. Um, I'm not a psychologist, but I do. Evolutionary psychology. The belief that our thoughts, our feelings, and our conceptions are traceable back to those of our ancestors. Our ancestors on the savannah our ancestors in Africa, all of us are out of Africa, all of us come from Africa, and our ancestors, you know, you think of it this way, why is it that so many of us are afraid of snakes? If you think about it, only 20% of all snakes are venomous, so why is there this almost universal fear of snakes, ophidophobia, I think it's called? Well, it's because our ancestors were afraid of some kind of snake beast, right? Why is it that we become frightened so often when we enter a dark room? Because our ancestors were afraid of the starless night. You know, they were afraid of entering a dark cave. Why of us are so many, why, why, are, why is it that so many of us are afraid of heights? Because our ancestors were afraid of falling from the mountain, you know? So our fears and our desires are traceable back to the fears and desires of our predecessors. So in a way, what I love about this film is I think it taps into those primitive instincts and that archaic religiosity. That's why I I hasten to add, this is not a, a doctrinaire film about any existing religion, not at all. It goes much deeper than that, and it goes much more archaic than that, like down to this, like to our unconscious, to our collective unconscious, 
which makes it much more interesting, I think, than a film that were that were propaganda. This is not propaganda at all. Far from it. It's art. And um, so that's that's my, one of my understandings of this film. And um, yeah, and it's I, I loved how. Again, numinous it is, you know, how ethereal it is and how carefully made it was, how patient it was, kind of like a prayer or a, a tone poem. And it was just exquisitely woven together. So, um, yeah, Thank you. just just don't stop. Don't stop. Don't stop. Please don't stop, because I think you've hit your stride. And it's, um, you know, despite all the chaos that is going on around us, or maybe because of all the chaos that is going on around us, where the world appears to be collapsing every day, this is a great time in which to create art. Because, you know, if you mm -hmm. think about it, we're in a period of great disorientation. That's the best, that's the best time at which to create art. You don't, you don't want to create art. I mean, you create art whenever you can, but... I think art is at its best when it's created uh, during times of upheaval and uncertainty, not not at times of stasis and boredom and uh, self-complacency and stagnation. So, mm -hmm. so don't stop. <laughs> Dr. Joseph Suglia. More information about Alchemy of the Spirit is available at stevebalderson.com. Tune in next time. For more Filmmaking Confidential, it is totally free to subscribe. And when you subscribe, you'll get upcoming new episodes automatically. And you'll have free access to all our past shows. The Filmmaking Confidential podcast is a production of Dekanga Audio and produced by myself and Ella Spencer. Our original theme music is composed by Kevin Robles. For more of the Filmmaking Confidential podcast, head over to filmmakingconfidential.com. If you have a question about filmmaking you'd like me to answer on the podcast, send me an email using the contact form on the website. To learn more of my filmmaking secrets, be sure to pick up a copy of the book, Filmmaking Confidential, available on Audible, paperback, and ebook, wherever books are sold. I'm Steve Balderson. Thanks for listening and spreading the word. Until next time... Keep making, keep doing, keep going. <laughs>